This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, a very good morning to you and you're listening to The Morning Run. It's 6 a.m. on Monday, the 23rd of May. I'm Philip C. in the studio today and joining me is Shazana Mokhtar. This is The Morning Run and it's exactly 222 days till the end of the year. Ah, 222. 222. Excellent stuff. Good morning, Philip. Always good to see you after a weekend. Did you have a good weekend? Was it... Long weekend for you? It was not a long weekend, but it was definitely a relaxing one, as my weekends tend to be. Weather was really hot, though. Yes, um, it was. It's very hot and humid. Good for laundry days. Uh, <laughs> not so good if you're planning outdoor activities. But super busy in the sports team, isn't it? We just saw Malaysia win uh, mixed badminton gold after a 23-year drought. That's right. Man City is now top or winner of the Premier League in a fairy tale match. Fairy tale match. Liverpool three one. I think many bosses coming to the office should be in a relatively good mood, I hope. Let's hope so. Well, Manchester City fans, of course, will be starting their Monday Monday on a great note. Exactly. And I think even if you look, it's a 2-1 win for the 1-2 win for the Red Bull team at the Spanish Grand Prix as well. So a really packed weekend of sports. Huh? Uh, and this and today is the last day also of the ASEAN Games, isn't it? That's right. Uh, and I wonder how Malaysia's medal tally will be and whether it's improved from its last uh, stint uh, at Philippines. I don't believe so. There are headlines coming from the Minister of Youth and Sports saying he was a bit disappointed with the medal tally of the Malaysian contingent at this year's SEA Games. A lot of questions to discuss there in terms of, you know, how we got here, what's the postmortem going to be like. I think that could be uh, the start of many debates to come. I think so. I think we've even fallen behind Singapore in the medal table ranking as well. But, you know, immediately we have a scintillating conversation happening for the next uh, two hours, three hours. At 7.15, we are going to ask, would an effective political funding bill look like able, will, will it be able to combat corruption in politics? We asked Dr. Mohammad Mohan, President of Transparency International Malaysia. And after that, we're also going to be looking into the Australian election outcome. We know that Australia will be welcoming a new Prime Minister in uh, Albanese. I forgot his first name. Anthony. Anthony that's Albanese. right. I was thinking, is it Andy Albert? <laughs> Anthony Albanese, also known as Albo to supporters there. We'll be speaking to Dr. Jill Shepard of the Australian National University for her analysis on the results. All about elbow. I get, and also after that, we'll have a survey on the landscape for Southeast Asian tech in the wake of Grab and C-Limited's recent quarterly earning reports. We'll be discussing all of that and more after this on the show. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. That was My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. Yes, Lord, give me the strength for the rest of the week. This is The Morning Run. I'm Philips. <laughs> Amen, exactly. This is The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Shazana Mokhtar. Uh, let's just get started with the first story of the day. And on the back of the Australian elections, we're talking about sausages, right, Shaz? Apparently, we are. Although my American brain looks at sausage and thinks hot dog. So <laughs> while you may say democracy sausage, I will say democracy Hot dog. Democracy hot that's dog. What that's what makes fine. sense to me. Yeah. Well, the question is with hot dogs, do you have it with bun or sliced bread or tomato mustard or barbecue? Onions or no onions for you? No onions for me. Uh, but the point is that in Australia, these democracy hot dogs or democracy sausages are such a big thing during elections. I mean, election time comes around and everyone is spotted holding um, a hot dog of sorts. And I didn't yes. know that. I didn't, I didn't, that. That's something new that I found out from this article that we're looking at. 
looking at today? Yeah, the context of the story is, as we all know, uh, well, not all of us know, but in Australia, it's compulsory voting. And what they decided to do was, in view that it was compulsory voting, uh, many community organisers thought, well, let's just make it a celebratory affair. Let's have a fun fair. At the same time, then, you know, we, we kind of take out the barbie on the pit and uh, serve all these sausages and make sausage rolls. And I think that's how the genesis of the democracy sausage came about. I think it's a great idea. Great I mean, idea. why not make it an event, right? Uh, especially because compulsory voting is the norm or that's the rules in Australia. If you don't go to vote, you will be fined 20 Aussie dollars. Um, and apparently this is enough to get people going out. I, I think uh, turnout has always been above 90% at, at most of the elections. Um, so yeah, why Why not make a a party of it, essentially? I do think that food becomes a very intrinsic part of, you know, getting people to participate in democracy. And I wonder out loud whether we see examples of this permeate anywhere else in the world. I don't really quite see that. I mean, in the US, for example, when you go primaries, when there are electoral primaries before the election, there's the very famous Iowa State Fair. Iowa State Fair, where I think the Republican and Democrat candidates basically eat all sorts of American junk food, in my view, to kind of show how how local they are, how they understand local nuances and such. But I don't really see that in Malaysia. So I always wonder whether we'll ever have democracy satay. (laughs) That was a thought that came to my mind as well. What would Malaysia's version of the hot dog be, you know? Um, I would say something like goreng pisang, maybe, or kropot leko, you know, one of those street foods that's really easy to make on the go. Yes. Um, I don't know. Maybe you can tell us what you think. What would be our version of a democracy sausage? You know, what, what, mm. what should be the thing? I feel like with our weather, it should really be ice cream, oh. like chendol and ice kacang, you know, democracy ice kacang. Mm. I could get behind that. Don't we have this case where after an election, you know, you ink your thumb and if you go to certain outlets, you actually get like 20% for a free ice cream and such, isn't it? That's yep. what actually happens. Whereas in this case here in Australia, it is actually pre the election or post or during the election where the fun fair takes place. I love the fact that it's actually around community-led activity. That is what I think is so incredible about this story, that it allows people to raise money in the process. And what I found uh, particularly amusing, I think, is just seeing all the photos of all the politicians uh, with their democracy sausage. It seems to be that's that's the thing to do. You want to be seen being one of the people, enjoying that hot dog, you know, and and there have been commentary over the years about how different politicians eat their sausage Um, and that kind of shows how in touch you are with the masses or not. That was quite amusing, I thought. I always wonder like, if I I find a political opponent would I kind of sabotage and add just a little bit more mustard underneath (laughs) the bread so that when the politician bites the hot dog, the mustard all falls over his or her shirt. Ah, I'd be a little bit more diabolical, Phil. I'd put chili padi in their hot dog. Terrible! (laughs) (laughs) I know! Don't don't take a hot dog from me, you know? You never know what you're going to find in there. Goodness, that's terrible. That's <laughs> nasty to the core, Shas. You would do chili party. Well, okay, definitely we won't be inviting you to my election campaign for sure. Oh, okay. But I think you might, you might, you know, you, that might be a good idea, Phil. So this is, I mean, you make a very interesting point that so how someone eats the local food is very interesting. And there's so many pictures of 
politicians going around trying to be one with the people, trying to eat as what they would normally do, but sometimes fail miserably, right? Kind of reflect their ivory tower approach, isn't it? You see that quite happen quite often, even in Malaysia. They're just not used to, you know, perhaps eating with their hands and such, and you can see them fail miserably. I, I have a photo in front of me from um, elections in 2016 where former Labour leader Bill Shorten kind of um, uh, left the public aghast when he ate a hot dog from the middle, like from yes. the top instead of from the side, exactly. which, which just seemed to take a lot of people, you know, shock, horror. It was... Uh, just interesting. And I mean, in the US elections, you know, sometimes the, your normal activity betrays your reality. Like, you know, this Democratic George McGovern, I think, was on a tank and it was like totally off because he was wearing his helmet totally off. So I think it's very interesting how perhaps these activities reflect uh, the the intentions and the, the background of the person as well. I mean, there's so much more to discuss on this. We'll be discussing all that and more after this on the show. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. That was Blue Monday by New New order. There's nothing blue about this Monday. Not you're, at all. <laughs> you're tuning into the morning run, and I'm Philip C. And I'm in the wonderful company of Shazana Mokta. Next, turns to our next story, which revolves around the Wagatha Christie saga. Shaz, are you talking about murder in the now? <laughs> I wish, but it's as the name suggests. It's a very British story. Wagatha Christie, of course, being a play on the uh, crime author Agatha Christie, uh, and really you're just attaching WAG, which, sta- which stands for Wives and Girlfriends, Girlfriends of footballers. Football Players, exactly, with Agatha Christie. So as you can see, there is a bit of mystery involved, but nothing as morbid and diabolical as an actual Far murder. Far from it. Far from it. And this is this theme, Agatha Christie, has been, has been spilling out through all the tabloids in the United Kingdom. It involves two, as you say, two footballers' wives, Colleen Rooney, and uh, Jamie Vardy's wife, Rebecca Vardy, over essentially a spat about leaking information between each other. So a bit of history and why it's called Agatha Christie was, I think many called Colleen Rooney the Agatha Christie here because she had planted a series of traps to see who was leaking information to the tabloids. So what she did was she had um, private uh, put a private uh, filter over some of her Instagram posts, only allowed Rebecca Vardy to see it, and she posted a whole bunch of false rumours and fake rumours, one where she was going to do a trip to Mexico for gender selection for a child, that she was in talks to be in Strictly Come Dancing, a UK uh, show, and even the mundanity of their basement flooding, and all that was reported you know, in the newspapers, and so she trapped Rebecca Vardy, and she now found, okay, this is the lady that essentially unearthed and spilled all my secrets. It was a very dramatic reveal on Instagram, I yes. believe, uh, with a lot of ellipses and um, finally revealing that it's Rebecca Vardy's account that has been taking this false information and channeling it to a, a reporter from The Sun, yes. a, tabloid, a, a tabloid paper in the UK, and then and then, then being reported um, for the public to see. I think it caught a lot of public attention. There's just uh, so much interest in what's going on. I think maybe partly because it seems like such a clever little 
plot, plot to, yes. to find out who did it. But for me, it also um, reveals the relationships, really, between celebrities and tabloid journalists. Um, I think uh, there, there have been interviews on the BBC with the reporter who actually uh, covered those false stories. And when pressed about, you know, why can't you just say who gave you the information? Um, he was very, very adamant about not revealing his sources. Um, But uh, he also shared that uh, in terms of his relations with celebrities, it's very congenial, very friendly, passing information back and forth. And so it it struck me as such a curious environment, um, you know, that it's very symbiotic, uh, tabloid journalists and celebrities. It is true. And that's why uh, for me... I just think it's fascinating that you have social media now at play, that wonderful tool where, you know, a lot of things can be hidden and a lot of things can be uh, masked so that it doesn't reveal a lot. It says a lot also about celebrity and would rich people such as this go to court over things like that? And I ask about my friends and friendships, whether I would do such a thing like that, like test people's friendships through these kind of little traps. Well, I guess it depends on whether you're being reported on by the Malaysian tabloids, Bill. <laughs> Unlikely, Perhaps far from if it. you had Harian Metro reporting on your whereabouts, you may also be wondering who on earth is leaking information about where I have breakfast in the morning. Um, and hence, you may want to uh, take on what Khalid Rooney did uh, to see if any of your social media feeds are being religiously monitored and then shared with tabloid journalists. Yeah, and I mean, this is so high profile because if we think about what's happening in the world, we have so many other bigger issues to deal with, uh, especially in the UK, you've got the Good Friday Agreement under question. You've got broader issues about the war in Ukraine. But this seems to emanate and, you know, and, and drive everyone's attention, isn't it? It raises the question of why is the public so obsessed with um, celebrity culture and celebrity happenings? It, I think it really... We should be asking ourselves, why Why do we find this so edifying? Why do yeah. we lap it up? Even as we perhaps, you know, mock them or, or, or feel that it's distasteful. Because I agree with you, I don't think this kind of case should have ever gotten to court. But it just goes to show that when you're rich, you can do that. You can bring cases like this uh, to court. Uh, what's happening is, of course, Rebecca Vardy is suing Colleen Rooney for defamation. Um, and really, that's the, that's the prerogative of the rich to do that. It is a celebrity. That's why there's so much interest over the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. So much interest over the O.J. Simpson trial. Because it's all these celebrity lives that basically are being spilt into the broader public limelight. That, I think, is what attracts. But I think at the core of it, it really distills and shows human nature at its worst. At its worst. Um, and yeah, the fact that this, the, the trial isn't um, publicly, uh, publicly broadcast, I think that does still help give it some, I guess, some protection of sorts. Because in contrast to other cases that are being publicly broadcast and the, in the public has been voracious and just peeling Absolutely through the Johnny, Her- Johnny Depp, uh, Amber Heard case, um, lots of consequences to that and probably uh, fodder for a conversation on another day. Yeah, we are heading into the 6.30 a.m. news bulletin and when we come back, we'll be looking at the latest international headlines coming up heartaches tonight by the eagles stay tuned bfm 89.9 i need more than just a dollar that was <laughs> i need a dollar by Allo black it's six forty in the morning monday the 23rd of may you're listening to the morning run with shazana mokta and myself philip c now let's have a look at the stories that made international headlines this morning and i just want to turn attention to the australian elections but one name that i think has caught my attention is sam 
Lim. He's the Western Australian Labour candidate for Tangney, but he's born in Johor, Malaysia, from very hardworking parents, oldest of eight children, and now he's finally been elected to Australia's parliament. He has such a fascinating backstory in the sense of how many different careers that he's um, been through. He was a police officer here in Malaysia as well as in Australia after he migrated or before he migrated. Um, I think one of the things that everyone's talking about is the fact that he was once a dolphin trainer <laughs> and that yes. he can communicate with dolphins. That's such a, that's such an interesting um, aspect. Well, he can speak 10 languages purportedly. So, you know, one of our producers more thought, oh, well, dolphin language with the 10th language. I suspect not. <laughs> but what a great uh, story about Malaysians doing good abroad and making a difference around the world. Because now in the Australian Parliament, you don't only have Sam Lim, but you also have Penny Wong, who's also the foreign minister, because she's got her in-tray full, doesn't she? Because today, she and the new anointed Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has to go over for the AUKUS trip. That's right. Uh, uh, Penny Wong is, of course, uh, from Kota Kinabalu. That's where yeah. she's originally from. She's been a Senate leader under the Labour Party since 2013. So she's a long-time um, politician in Australia. Um, I was really particularly happy to see her and um, Sam Lim um, appoint or elected simply because I feel that um, their presence showcases the multicultural Australia that is. I think previously there had been um, comments about why is Australia's parliament so um, mono-ethnic? It's just uh, filled with a lot of white, white males. Uh, exactly. So hopefully moving forward, this will provide a more multicultural perspective in policymaking. Yes. So we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Jill Shepard about this seismic shift in politics, because as you say, we see this rise of independence in Australia, especially from this teal movement that was going to drive a lot of actions on climate change. And they all are women who really who took over and won liberal seats in uh, key urban states like Sydney and such. But just another story that I think struck our attention as we said President Biden is now in North Asia. He was in Korea heading over to Japan uh, and he offered to help North Korea with vaccines because as we know, North Korea is suffering from a relatively serious outbreak of the COVID uh, situation. Nearly two and a half million people have been sickened by fever according to state media. That's right. Uh, I think a lot of uncertainty about what actually is happening in North Korea because throughout the pandemic they've said that oh we don't have any COVID cases and now suddenly they're coming out saying that, yes, we do have COVID cases. What, ex- what exactly are they looking for from the international community? Um, what are they looking for from the U.S. perhaps? So uh, something to keep watch on for sure. As you mentioned, uh, Phil, President Joe Biden is in the region in South Korea and Japan. All eyes are going to be on what kind of announcements he makes with regard to trade in the region. There was a lot of disappointment during the special ASEAN summit uh, two weeks ago where nothing really came out about how the U.S. intends to grow its economic presence in the region. Whether there'll be more details coming out of this visit is something that I know a lot of people will be watching. That is the debate that the Indo-Pacific framework was being touted as a a larger framework, right? That's why there was so much disappointment over the ASEAN summit that took place. Whether or not that will translate to anything tangible to show US's presence in the region to counter China's increasing influence is a big question mark. And can I just, while we're still on the topic of US, I just want to draw attention to this story that's been going on in US headlines about 
about baby formula and the fact that the U.S. is experiencing a baby formula shortage due to the shutting down of one of the manufacturers of baby formula. And I find this such a fascinating story because a lot of the elements that come to light, the fact that the U.S. is very self-sufficient in its baby formula production and manufacturing, but uh, that it's very consolidated among just one or two or three companies. And the fact is when one company fails or one factory fails, it has a massive repercussions uh, for the supply and distribution of baby formula. And it's such a visceral um, issue because when parents can't feed their children, that's that's, that's, fundamental. a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And you talk about this shift from just in time now to just in case. You mentioned just now baby formula in the United States. I heard stories about mustard being shot in France. So this is a question about supply chain affecting at a global level on so many local issues. And the mustard issue is because a crop yields from mustard seeds have been so low this year because of drought and other climate relations and the war. Exactly. So all these uh, factors are coming together to create this perfect storm of disruptions in the economy. Absolutely. And not only that, we also have issues on chicken in Malaysia. It shows you how localized these global issues are. It's 6.45 in the morning. And when we come back, we'll be looking at today's local headlines. Keep it here. BFM 89.9. I'll give a ringgit to anyone who knows the lyrics of that song. That was Bluebird by the Cocktoo Twins. Bluebeard. Bluebeard, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) By the Cocktoo Twins. That is actually one of our producer Sim's favourite bands. But it's currently now 6.50 in the morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. And right now we're looking at the latest news in Malaysia. What's caught your attention, Shaz? Well, I think this morning it's really all about chicken supplies or the lack thereof. Because over the weekend, there were many reports about how traders and restaurateurs faced a shortage of chickens. They could not, they didn't receive supply, chicken supply to sell. Um, I, this is a true story. The restaurant that I went to on Saturday said that they couldn't offer any chicken chop meals because they just didn't have chicken in the kitchen. A um, lot of questions on why this is the case. I think if we look at the Malay papers especially, there's been a lot of headlines over the past few weeks about the chicken situation, about how high prices have gone up. And there were rumours that the um, uh, chicken producers were going to go on strike. That hasn't happened. But still, they haven't been able to supply chickens because the chickens are underweight due to the weather factors. A lot wow. of details. A confluence of many factors. Exactly. Well, the chickens have clearly come home to roost because now the cabinet has moved forward its appoint meeting from Wednesday to Monday to discuss these broader food issues. I think as you said just now, 90% of orders were not delivered according to the New Straits Times. And I think last week we saw news that the Ministry of Domestic Trade and Consumer Affairs Minister has basically also relaxed uh, and moved APs for certain certain food supply issues in view of the food constraints taking place in this country. We did cover this on the station. Uh, Evening Edition has a fascinating um, inside story on the issue of relaxing APs. We also spoke spoke to food policy expert, uh, Professor Dato Paduka, Dr. Fatima Arshad last week. So check out those podcasts if you want more discussion on um, food security and how to ensure access to food in Malaysia amid these very trying economic and environmental times. So Food cost of living is going to be a central theme, I think, in this coming election. If it does get if it does happen in the next three months, we have been having these conversations globally about inflation. The U.S. has an inflation nearly eight percent here, and beyond just food, there's also the concern about price at the pump, and a lot of discussions also about. And you hear noises from the ministers. Uh, saying that they want to drive a subsidized 
fuel subsidy, a targeted fuel subsidy, I'm sorry. And that's on the back of potentially removing fuel subsidies as well. I mean, we hear this argument all the time at points of economic pressure. Oh, we need to remove the, the fuel subsidy, make it more targeted. This, is, this has come up again and again. Um, the front page of the Sina Harian uh, has kekalkan subsidy bahan api. So this is an appeal um, from groups that want the subsidy to remain. And the thing is, everybody acknowledges that fuel subsidies aren't sustainable in the long run. But the government up till now has never had the political will or courage to take the unpopular decision and reform those subsidies. Mm. And to do that now at a time when people are pressured by cost of living issues, they're not going to do it either. I feel like that's political suicide, right? But they need, to, they need to show that they're doing something. And I don't know, this whole rigmarole is actually really tiring. When will the government be serious in trying to institute these kinds of subsidy reforms? It is going to be painful for sure. And this is a question I think of sequence. That's why many people are very keen to see to what extent are these EP removals are. Because the guiding principle and logic has always been before we touch subsidies, can we make sure we make it have an efficient distribution of goods? Can we remove the middleman in the mix? So when the government announced last week that they were planning to remove APs, I think that created quite a few shockwaves. And I think the question here is how will that happen? To what extent are these AP removals are? Because I think that will hopefully put less pressure on pricing. But you're right, Shas, the core issue is still that we are heavily subsidised and the government's public finances are not in great shape. And it's always going to be difficult to make decisions when the economy is under pressure. This is why tough decisions really need to be made in the good times so that we can, that will help us weather the bad times. So, I mean, I think our economy and our government is at crossroads now. We really need to be making smart, uh, data-driven policy decisions. Uh, so something that we're going to keep watching for sure. Yeah, I think just on the broader theme, there's also this discussion again about Malay becoming an ASEAN lingua franca. I always wonder out loud whether that's part of the conversation or whether that's part of the situation at the moment in view of the political environment we are in. So you see, I have I have views about this. I, I, <laughs> I see <laughs> sure nothing <laughs> wrong with with wanting to um, uphold the Malay language. Okay, I feel that uh, yes, there's value to that. But what is the what's the policy aim of doing so? And at the mm. moment, to me, it feels just like a cheap populist move. Because okay, maybe the government wants to make uh, Basam Malaysia a more um, ASEAN language. But to do that is going to take massive investments, and it's really going to have to you know you, you really have to increase your investment into the language, into using the language, into mm. publishing, into the kind of content that you put out. So it's, yeah, I, I feel like you say one thing, but do your actions support that? Yeah, but what's not cheap is your grocery bill. We're heading into the 7am news bulletin and when we come back, we'll be looking at how markets closed yesterday. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.